and so he's invited his friend Colin Packard uh, to come and share God's word with us this morning. So I want to invite Colin up uh, and uh, pray over him, and then we'll move into our time of lesson. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for the blessing of this morning, this time of worship and praise to you and to lift your name on high. And Father, as we move into this time of study uh, and as Colin speaks to us from your word, as he uh, reveals to us a message that you have laid upon his heart, Father, I pray that you would speak powerfully through him. Uh, Father, I pray that you would open our hearts, that you would open our ears, that we would hear the words that you speak to us, the way that your spirit moves this morning, and may that be planted deep in our hearts and take root and begin to grow. We thank you so much for the blessing that it is to be your children and to be able to commune with you, to converse with you, to study with you, and to listen to you. And Father, as you speak through Colin this morning, we just pray uh, that we would hear with open ears and open hearts. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Chris. Well, it's good to be here with you this morning. This is my first time at the Kaufman uh, Church of Christ, and uh, it has been great to, to meet some of you already this morning. I hope to get to know more of you by the day's end. Uh, Doug has been a, a friend of mine for uh, over a decade now in ministry. As ministers, we see each other from time to time at events and in Dallas at preacher's lunches. Uh, Doug's been a part of, uh, actually, Doug's uh, parents are at the Highland Oaks Church of Christ, and my dad and mom are there as well. My dad's an elder at that congregation, and so we've had connections throughout the years, but it is a blessing to be together, and I'm grateful for the opportunity uh, to address uh, you all this morning uh, from the Word of God. Uh, in August, I preached my final sermon of full-time ministry. I preached for 13 years uh, for a church in Denver, Colorado, followed up by uh, a church here in Allen, Texas, uh, where our family lives at the Greenville Oaks Church of Christ. Uh, and so it is good to, to be able to drive to this part of the city. Uh, this is a place where uh, I went to high school, the Dallas Christian uh, School, just down the road as well. And so have known people in this area for a good long time. But I'm grateful uh, for this opportunity. Let's pray as we open uh, God's word this morning. Oh God, we, we come before you this morning. And uh, God, we are grateful for the chance to be together. We've known over this past year how that's been more of a challenge than in previous times. And God, I, I pray this morning as we come before your word, as we come expectant of what your spirit will do in our lives, that you would uh, come and speak to our hearts, each one of us. I pray this morning you would pour through me the gift of preaching so that Christ would be formed in our hearts, that we might live as salt and light in this world. And I pray this prayer in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, Amen. Well, a few years ago, you may remember a series that Doug uh, did here uh, on the Bible. And that was a series actually that Doug came to me and said, Colin, would you like to work on a series together? And it was such a blessing to be able to work with Doug, uh, processing some of that. You may remember talking about that the Bible is not just a book. It's actually a, a library of books, right? 66 books in all with all these genres and written across centuries of time, all inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. This is the world's best-selling book or collection of books. And I've spent more time with these books than any other book in the world. You know, some books you might go to and you might read once and put on the shelf forever. Other books, you may have one that you go back to yearly or regularly because it's one of your favorites. But the Bible, isn't it amazing how we can come back time and time again, see things we've never seen before. And, and this morning, I want to dig into the scriptures. I want us to look closely again to be reminded of what there is in this treasure of scripture that the more you dig in these books the more you find 
But if you listen to the discourse about the Bible in our culture, it sounds different than that. I, I hear people talk about how the Bible is a primitive book. It's a barbaric book. And certainly there are stories in the Old Testament that we see some of where they may be getting that. Some say the Bible's behind the times. And when I hear that, I think, boy, I wish, I wish others would read this again. Because I find this to be so relevant for our times. There's so much to dig into here. And so the one goal I have in the sermon this morning is to interest you in digging one more layer deeper than whatever level you have dug into this book. To discover again the beauty, the wisdom, uh, the wonderful uh, things that we can find in the scripture. So I'm going to tell you several stories over the next 30 minutes or so. And there's a good chance you'll wonder where in the world I'm going, and that's okay. I hope by the end to have just one point you can take away with you at least this morning. But today I'm going to talk about these things. Bathroom commodes, of course. Prodigal son. Chariots. Jesus is Lord, that phrase. Chooses wife. And we'll end in our favorite place, seat seats. First, uh, about bathroom commodes. Recently I heard a story about an old-fashioned lady. Always quite delicate, elegant especially in her use of language. She and her husband were planning a, a week's vacation to Florida, so she wrote to a particular campground and asked for a reservation. She wanted to make sure that the campground was fully equipped, but she didn't quite know how to ask about the toilet facilities. Now, she couldn't bring herself to write in the letter she was writing uh, using the word toilet, but after much deliberation, she came up with the old-fashioned term bathroom commode. But when she wrote that down, she still thought she was being a little too forward. So she started all over again, rewrote the entire letter, and referred to the bathroom commode merely as the B.C. Does the campground have its own B.C.? is what she actually wrote. Well, the campground owner wasn't old-fashioned at all. And so when he got the letter, he just couldn't figure out what this woman was talking about. That B.C. business really stumped him. After worrying about it for a while, he showed the letter to several campers. They couldn't imagine what the lady meant either. So the campground owner finally came to the conclusion that the lady must be asking about the location of the local Baptist church. And so he sat down and wrote this following reply. Dear Madam, I regret very much the delay in answering your letter, but I now take pleasure in informing you that a BC is located nine miles north of the campground and is capable of seating 250 people at a time. I admit it's quite a distance away if you're in the habit of going regularly, but no doubt you will be pleased to know that a great number of people take uh, their lunches along and make a day of it. They usually arrive early and stay late. Such a beautiful facility and the acoustics are marvelous. Even the normal delivery sounds can be heard. The last time my wife and I went was six years ago, and it was so crowded we had to stand up the whole time we were there. It may interest you to know that right now a supper is planned to raise money to buy more seats. They're going to hold it in the basement of the BC. I'd like to say it pains me very much not to be able to go more regularly, but it is surely no lack of desire on my part. As we grow old, it seems to be more of an effort, particularly in the cold weather. If you do not decide to come down to your, our campground, perhaps I could go with you the first time and sit with you and introduce you to all the other folks. Remember, this is a friendly community. Sincerely, campground owner. Context is everything, isn't it? 
speaking of context. Second, about that prodigal son story. Prodigal son is likely the most familiar story that Jesus told. One of those parables, like the prodigal son, it's a great story. Recently, I heard about a professor who asked 12 students in a seminary class to read the story of the prodigal son carefully from Luke's gospel, to close their Bibles, and then retell the story as faithfully as they could, every detail they could remember. And none of the 12 American students mentioned a detail in the story that comes in verse 14. I want to read that to you now, Luke 15, verse 14. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. None of those 12 students mentioned the famine as they recounted the details of the story. The professors uh, found this omission interesting. He, so he organized a larger experiment in which he had 100 people read the story, retell the story as accurately as possible to a partner. And only six of those 100 mentioned this detail about the famine. The group was ethnically, racially, socioeconomically diverse. The famine forgetters had only one thing in common. They were from the United States. So this professor had another opportunity to try the experiment again, this time outside of the United States. In St. Petersburg, Russia, he gathered 50 students, the same suggestion. Read this story, try to remember all the details, retell it as you remember it. And this time an overwhelming 42 out of the 50 students mentioned this famine. Now why would that be? Well, just 70 years before, 670,000 people had died of starvation after a Nazi German siege of the capital city began a three-year famine in St. Petersburg and the surrounding area. You see, famine was very much a part of the history of that place and the imagination of the Russian people. Third, about chariots. The Bible was written by uh, Jewish people who belonged to a Jewish minority living under the oppression of a succession of massive military superpowers who had conquered them. Think back in the story of the Exodus. There's the Egyptians first that they're living under uh, for 400 years waiting on God to move. And then the Persians later on in the promised land, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Greeks, and then the Romans in New Testament times. And these people, they had experienced defeat after defeat, generation after generation. Imagine what that must have been like. It's hard for us to imagine. The people of Israel knew what it meant to live in subjection to a ruling superpower. They lived under the Egyptian superpower for 400 years, but God had brought them this deliverer we read about in the story of Exodus. Moses, who grew up in the palace, and he comes, and God calls him in the midst of Midian to go and call for Pharaoh to allow these people to go worship in the desert, ultimately to be free. As they escaped through the Red Sea, do you remember the mode of, of transport that was used as, as, as Pharaoh and those that were coming after them to try to keep them in Egypt, what they used? It, it, it was a chariot. You remember that? The chariot was the tank. It was the fighter jet of the ancient world. When, when you don't have as many chariots or tanks or guns or fighter jets as whoever is conquering you at the moment, well, you have to look beyond your own strength beyond the strength of your oppressor for hope and consolation. You have to trust that there are larger forces in the world. 
at work in the universe, forces that are on your side. And centuries later, Israel has to continually remind themselves of that because they are often the underdog throughout the story. Which brings me to Psalm chapter 20, Psalm 20, verse 7. This psalm I remember singing about, reading about before. It says, there's some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Do you see how a psalm like that would have come as such a comfort to people who were living in the midst of those times and those experiences? But here's an important question for us. As citizens of the most powerful global military superpower the world has ever seen, is it, is it possible that we might miss some of the themes of this inspired book, the Bible, written by people who were under the rule and domination of the powers of their day? This thought humbles me. Because the Psalms weren't written by people like me. These Psalms were written by refugees on the run from people that they were concerned about. And so when Peter addresses foreigners and exiles in the book of 1 Peter, I begin to wonder if there are some things in context I might just miss. Because my life is very different than those who first read this book. Four, about that phrase, Jesus is Lord. There's this really strange verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that I always wondered about growing up. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 3 that I want to read to you right now. Maybe you found it odd or maybe it was just normal to you. But, but this is what it says. This is what Paul wrote. There are, Therefore, I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus, be cursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit spirit. Now, I remember growing up, we sang that phrase all the time, Jesus is Lord in songs. That doesn't seem that hard to utter those three words. Why would it take the Holy Spirit to say such a phrase? That's the kind of question about Scripture that ought to send us digging and searching in Scripture for what's there. What's the big deal? Well, with a little study, it becomes more obvious. In the first century, it was considered treason to say Jesus is Lord. Because in those days, people living in the Roman Empire believed and confessed three words that were very different than that. They would say that Caesar is Lord. When the early Christians said the phrase Jesus is Lord, they were making a statement not just about who Jesus is, but about who Caesar is not. They're committing themselves to live the way Jesus had taught them to live rather than the way that Caesar demanded them to live. And so Jesus is Lord, you come to find out, is more than just a song lyric. It's a phrase with teeth in it. It's a phrase that could cost you your life to utter that phrase in the first century. I now understand a little more, maybe, why it takes the Holy Spirit to say such a phrase. Fifth, about Chusa's wife. I did Bible Bowl growing up, and I don't remember Chusa's wife at all. Sometimes we read things at surface level and we miss the thing that's right in front of us. And Luke 8 is one of those places that I missed it time and time again. This woman in scripture that I don't remember hardly at all. Luke 8, beginning in verse 1. After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him and also some women who had 
been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household. Susanna and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. You've never noticed it before, have you? I've read it hundreds of times and I've missed it hundreds of times until the other day. There were these women who were funding Jesus' ministry. He may have been homeless, but he had these wealthy female friends who paid the bills. And one of them is a woman named Joanna. Now, who's Joanna again? Well, it said it there in verses 2 and 3. She's the wife of Chusa. And who is Chusa? <laughs> Chusa is the household uh, manager of Herod's house. Now, that is a bomb dropped right there in the middle of that paragraph in Luke 8. Now, a little background. Herod the Great was the king of Israel who died around 4 AD. He was a towering figure who dominated the socio-political landscape for 40 years, building massive palaces and theaters and fortresses and killing lots of people, including his wife and some of his sons. He was the one you remember in the story of Jesus being born to the world, that all these babies were being killed as a result of his command. Well, one of Herod the Great's sons who came into power after his death was Herod Antipas, and he was the ruler over Galilee. He was a very rich man. He owned lots of land, had palaces and guards and servants and a massive household, the biggest in the country. And who managed this Herod Antipas's household? Well, we find out here in Luke 8, it was Chusa. So Chusa would have been responsible for a massive amount of wealth, which would have brought him likely a massive amount of wealth. And he shares his wealth with his wife, who is traveling with an itinerant rabbi paying the bills. And so later on, this Herod also wants to kill Jesus because he's preaching about the arrival of another kingdom, the kingdom of God. So when you connect the dots, all of a sudden you see, don't you? Herod wants to kill Jesus because Jesus is proclaiming another kingdom other than Herod's. And that makes Jesus a political threat. But Jesus is able to travel around announcing the subversive message of a different kingdom than Herod's because there's a group of women who travel with Jesus and pay his bills, including a woman named Joanna who has lots of money because her husband is the household manager who gets paid by Herod. In other words, Herod is indirectly funding the very resistance movement he's trying to stamp out. <laughs> In other words, God has a way where there seems to be no way. Fascinating, isn't it? That's just a few words in a paragraph in the eighth chapter of one of the gospel accounts of Jesus' life. And finally, the moment you've all been waiting for, because it's the last in this table of contents, seed seeds. In Mark 5, there are several stories about Jesus healing people. There's a demoniac named Legion in that text. There's Jairus' daughter. There's a woman with a bleeding issue. But today I want to tell you more about that woman with the bleeding issue. She's been subject to this for 12 years, which means she'd been unclean for over a decade. She spent everything she had looking for doctors who would cure her, but to no avail. And the way we often tell her stories about the courage it must have taken for her to touch the hem of Jesus' garment. When she did this, she was healed. And this is certainly a story about courage, but there's more there the more we dig. 
See, this woman knew the scriptures. She, she knew it better than I think I do. If you go back in the Old Testament, I think you can see more of all that she knew that sometimes we forget. In Numbers chapter 15, there's these words that I think are important to understand this other story. Numbers 15, beginning in verse 37. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, Throughout the generations to come, you were to make tassels on the corners of your garments, with a blue cord on each tassel. You will have these tassels to look at, and so you will remember all the commands of the Lord, that you may obey them and not prostitute yourselves by chasing after the lusts of your own hearts and eyes. Then you will remember to obey all my commands and will be consecrated to your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. A quick lesson about these words. The Hebrew word that's translated as tassels is the word tzitzit. Now that's fun to say. Would you mind to say that with me this morning? Tzitzit. It's kind of hard to say with our English language, isn't it? God tells his people that you're attached these cords, these tzitzits, to the corners of their garments so they'll be constantly reminded to live as he created them to live. You'll still see this today if you're in a place where you're around Jewish people, maybe walking on their way to synagogue, and they have these robes, and you see the tzitzits, those cords that are hanging off. Now, the Hebrew word that's translated as corner in this passage is the word kanaf, which isn't near as much fun to say, but would you say that with me this morning as well? Kanaf. Okay, so the kanaf's the corner, the tzitzits are these cords that are coming off. To this day, many observant Jews wear this prayer shawl to obey this text. And the prayer shawl shows up a lot of interesting places throughout Scripture. But one of the most interesting and significant places is in the last book in the Old Testament in our, in our English Bibles, Malachi chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Listen, listen to this text. This Again, the last chapter here in our Old Testament. Surely the, Lord, the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble, and the day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them, but for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays, and you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. That's a little bit of a strange verse. I don't remember this frolicking cow passage in the past, but it's an important verse. And it's a verse that this woman in Mark chapter 5 knows. She's counting on it. See, Malachi is making a prophecy about the coming Messiah by saying the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays or in its wings. And guess what word Malachi uses for wings? The word is kanaf. The same word in Numbers that refers to the edge of a garment, the corner to which the tassels were attached. This woman in Mark 5 knows exactly what she's doing. She knows that the Messiah will have power from the edge of his garment, from the kanaf and the tzitzits that come from it. In other words, you'll know the Messiah has come when healing comes from the corner of his prayer shawl. Now, are you with me in this passage in Mark 5 now? When, when Mark grabs the edge, or when this woman grabs the edge of Jesus' garment, she is demonstrating that she believes Jesus is the Messiah. And that his tzitzits 
have healing powers. And there are some people that just think this is a library of books. I see, I believe the Bible's like an onion, right? It has these layers, and, and maybe, maybe a children's Bible's the first time you kind of begin to peel back the first layer, you hear these stories, and then maybe you get that teenage Bible and you're reading it at a level closer. And then as you age, as you get more through life, as you experience more, you're just peeling back these layers and you realize there's more to uncover. And there's no end to the layers you'll discover if we keep digging away at these scriptures. Hebrews chapter 6 speaks about it this way. Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instructions about cleansing rites and laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment, and God permitting, we will do so. The writer of Hebrews is pushing people to keep peeling the onion back. That part of our growth as followers of Jesus is moving from being fed to being able to feed ourselves in an increasing way. It's actually what the writer of Hebrews says in the verses leading up to chapter 6. He challenges them and says, Every infant moves from drinking milk provided by mom and gets to the point where we feed ourselves. The same is true in our relationship with Scripture. We must move from needing a teacher, being able to more and more feed ourselves. We're called to move from, move from milk to meat. And no matter where you are in your journey of the Bible, there's more to uncover and learn in these pages. We as leaders, we, we don't do our job if we're uh, not equipping you to lead this library. And I think that's what Doug and these leaders are seeking to do with you is to help you move in this direction. We don't want to develop dependency issues where you wait for Doug every Sunday to teach you the next thing out of Scripture. We want each of you to grow and to feel more confident that the same spirit that inspired these words inspires you as you read them as well. If you're going to have a surgical procedure done, you want a doctor who has studied, who's received a degree, and you very much want someone who's cut on other people before they're going to cut on you. Part of becoming a surgeon is acquiring proficiency in medical terms and procedures. There's a vocabulary that all of us learn as we move more into any kind of field of work. And when you're with people in your field of expertise, you're able to speak in shorthand. You're able to understand the complicated words that your clients, you might never use that language with them. There, there's an expectation that comes with expertise in any field, financial, medical, education, law, science, physical therapy, and ministry. And when we chose our field, we knew that this was a part of the deal. A, a surgeon and her nurses need to have a common language they can use in the middle of a procedure. It's important to know which scalpel you're referring to, which artery needs to be cut. And when you sit down with the family after surgery, you have to move out of that world to be able to sit down and talk with people who haven't studied as much to make sense of things. So why would we find it odd that there would be a process of learning new vocabulary and language when we grow to understand Scripture as well? Yes, it's possible to read Scripture in a simple way and come to a saving faith in Jesus. I'm grateful that that's the case. These were simple fishermen that followed Jesus around and came to be able to, through the power of the Spirit, preach this word and grow the church. But if you want to grow in faith, it takes work. It takes learning. It 
It's important to grow in your understanding of the context, the vocabulary, the background stories, and skills needed to interpret and imply the Bible well. And I hope today's sermon has intrigued you to maybe take your next step, whatever that may look like, in peeling the onion. Because there's so much more for every one of us, and, and each of you have more to learn as well. No matter what age you are, no matter how long you've spent, no matter how worn your Bible is. And that's the brilliance of God's word to us. You know, when I first learned to ski in the mountains of California, I was taught a technique called the snowplow. Did any of you learn that way as well? They taught me to make this pie shape with my skis so that I wouldn't run into a tree, I think is really what it was about. It slowed me down enough to be able to work my way down the mountain. And the older you learn, the harder that is really, isn't it? And over time, you know, that was a great thing. The first lesson skiing was to do this. It got me down the mountain safely. Safety is important. But there comes a time in learning to ski that you want to grow past the snowplow technique. If you want to grow to love snow skiing, you'll want to learn how to point your skis down the mountain to turn your way down instead of wearing out your thighs all the way down with the snowplow. That's when the skiing actually gets fun is when you move from that first step and stage of learning to being able to work your way down with less effort. Allow me to be confessional for a moment. This is a safe space, correct? When my wife Holly is out of town and I'm tasked with feeding the kids, the options of what will be cooked for dinner are more limited than when she's there. <laughs> Here's the dinner menu when, I, when I'm cooking. There's always takeout, which is a great option. The kids like to, to go for that one. There's cereal, I can do that. Peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Got to remember which kids need the crust cut off and how they like it cut. Then there's ramen noodles and mac and cheese. I'm talking easy mac, not anything special. It's a sad situation for a grown man to have a menu like that. It's not really okay. It's kind of embarrassing to admit. Because a grown man ought to get to the point where he can feed himself. Or in the words of Jesus, man shall not live on bread alone. In other words, man shall not live on cereal, PB&J, ramen, and Easy Mac. This library of books is inspired. It's deep. It's layered. It's my favorite library. And if you look closely, there are more Joannas. Choose his wife waiting to be discovered. There are more famines that go unnoticed. There are more seed seats that offer healing. There's a reason why this book has stood the test of time. Why do the Psalms stick? Because they show us what a healthy spiritual life looks like. They name everything that's happening inside of us that happened centuries ago. They give it language. They give it expression. You need to articulate it and get it out. Because if you don't drag it up and give words to what's going on inside. It's going to get buried down there somewhere and it's going to come out sideways in ways you'd never expect. Why do the prophets endure? Because they fearlessly speak the truth to power. They call out injustice and oppression of systems that have gone wrong. They hold those in leadership accountable for decisions they make. They're the first articulations in human history of a coherent vision of biblical justice. Why does the parable of the prodigal son get preserved. Well, it's a story about exile, about all the ways that we wander far from home, wanting just to come home and be seen as just a servant. That would be enough rather than a son 
But in that story, we remember and we find out that God welcomes us back as more than a servant, but as beloved children of God. And then there's the story about Jacob in the book of Genesis. Jacob pretends he's Esau. This is a story about a man becoming comfortable in his own skin, owning up to his true self, his true identity, or Daniel. Think about that story. He's stripped of his name and family and customs and taken to a foreign land where he's indoctrinated into the life of the Babylonians. Everything known and familiar is taken from him, and yet he maintains his sense of integrity and identity. Yes, these books are more relevant than ever. They share our story. They give us a sense of who we are. And there's more than what we've seen that the Spirit of God wants to open up to us. Let me encourage you. Read this book again. Fresh eyes. Pray that the Spirit would reveal what's needed in this season. I, I promise you, God wants to deliver whatever's needed in this season to you. Because there's always more treasure hidden no matter how many times you read it. Let's pray as we close our time in the Word this morning. God, we thank you for the Scriptures. We thank you for the depth that's here. We thank you for those that have taught us the Scriptures that this very morning are teaching our children about the stories of God. God, we thank you for the ways that you have brought us to the moment we're in, God. You've called us to be Christians for such a time as this. You've given us this great list of, of books that are inspired by your Holy Spirit that give us a means of hope, a means of confession, a mean, means of getting right with you and with one another. So God, help us to go again this week with fresh eyes. And I trust that we won't be disappointed by what you offer to us there. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.